Okay, so we are starting a new series um, on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, the Sermon on the Mount. It's um, for many Christians a familiar um, passage of Scripture. The, the title Sermon on the Mount, you won't find that in the Bible itself because you know the little headings, they're not Bible, right? Um, but it's called the Sermon on the Mount. We've come to refer to it as that because over the uh, because um, it's a phrase that we've used over the years. Because Jesus, we're told, goes up onto the mountainside, um, sits down to teach his disciples. Matthew five one and two. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. So, what he then taught we've referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And you know, going up a mountain and sitting down to teach um, wouldn't have been lost on Jewish listeners. Um, we do miss some things when we read our New Testament today, when we read the Gospels, when we read what Jesus did and said, because we're not kind of steeped as thoroughly in Jewish culture and history as those people around Jesus would have been. But their minds um, probably might have gone to the fact that Moses went up onto a mountain in order to receive revelation from God. And certainly um, Bible teachers or um, rabbis um, in Jesus' day, they would have sat down to teach. Uh, and in fact, Jesus himself refers to them as sitting in Moses' seat. So this idea of Moses and the law and the scriptures and teaching the scriptures would have already been kind of like familiar territory for people going up the mountain, sitting down um, to teach. And that's important because Jesus is not about to ditch the Old Testament in order to introduce a new religion. He's not about to kind of like abolish everything that's gone before and say, well, that didn't work. Let's have, a, let's have another go at this. Um, actually, Jesus came and he said that he'd come to fulfill all of the Old Testament scriptures, all the law and all the prophecies. In fact, all the narrative, all the prophecy, all the poetry, all the wisdom um, in the Old Testament we find out in the New Testament was actually pointing towards Jesus all along. Um, there was a time just after Jesus' resurrection when some disciples were walking on a road to a place called Emmaus and they were sad because um, Jesus had been crucified and they didn't realize that he'd been raised from the dead. Uh, and Jesus appears to them, but they don't recognize him. Uh, and he starts talking to them. And it says there in Luke 24 and verse 47 that he went and he explained how in all the scriptures what was written about him. In all of the scriptures, all of the Bible is ultimately pointing towards Jesus. And if you are a new Christian, if you've not kind of really got around to tackling reading the Bible yet, um, it's a must, by the way. It really is a must for all of us to be regularly reading our Bibles if we want to grow in God, if we want to understand the faith that he's called us into. But if you've never read through your Bible before, I really want to recommend start with the New Testament. Start reading through the Gospels. Read through the New Testament a couple of times before you even try really to make sense of the Old Testament. Because um, everything that's in the Old, it turns out, was actually pointing towards Jesus. And we've got this incredible advantage now that we can read all the stuff about Jesus first. Yeah. So that we can then understand what was pointing towards him. 
But this is why Matthew 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, is so um, significant. There's a shorter version, by the way, in Luke's Gospel too. Um, But Matthew 5 to 7 is the longest continuous section that we have of Jesus' own teaching in the Bible. And so Jesus is building on everything that's gone before, and he's going to help us to understand. He's going to help God's people to understand what God is calling them into. It gives us a sense of what Jesus is all about. It gives us a sense of what he stands for. It's an opportunity for us to find out what matters to Jesus. So we're going to look today at Matthew 5, 1 to 16. As I say, Stockport, you're already slightly ahead of us. Um, but then they will reprise where um, they're up to next week. Uh, and we will carry on through all the way over the next few weeks through Matthew 5 um, to 7. So today we're going to look at Matthew 5, 1 to 16. But first... I want to just set the context by looking at the end of chapter 4. So Matthew um, chapter 4 and verse 23. Um, By the way, if you have, obviously the verses will come up on the screen, but you may find it particularly helpful today because I might keep referring back to passages. You may find it, if you've got a Bible with you or you've got it on your phone, you may find it helpful to have it open. Matthew 4, 23 to 25. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and illness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and that region across the Jordan followed him. So having already told us about the birth of Jesus and the prophetic proclamation of John the Baptist about Jesus and about the baptism of Jesus and then the temptation of Jesus, it's like Matthew now is about at the end of chapter 4 that we've just read. He's introducing the next section, if you like, of his story about Jesus. And he starts that next section by saying that Jesus taught about the kingdom of God And healed all those who were sick. And then in Matthew 5 through 7, we have the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus teaches. And then in Matthew 8 and 9, we have various accounts throughout Matthew 8 and 9 of Jesus healing all kinds of people, all kinds of illnesses. And then in Matthew 9 and verse 35, if we just go there for a moment. Matthew 9 and verse 35, it says... Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and illness. You see how the verses we read in Matthew 4 and then this verse in Matthew 9, they form like bookends, if you like, for this section of Matthew's story. This section is all about how Jesus taught about the kingdom and backed that up by healing all kinds of illnesses and and setting people free from demonic oppression. So this teaching in Matthew 5 to 7 is all about the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Matthew 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, we could refer to it as Jesus' kingdom manifesto. 
It's where he sets out what this kingdom is really all about. Now, if we're going to keep using this word kingdom, I just want to define it for you quickly. I know some of you are very familiar with this, but when we talk about the kingdom of God or in Matthew's gospel, the kingdom of heaven, because they mean the same thing. So don't think when you hear kingdom of heaven, do not think, oh, the place I'm going to go to when I die. Okay, the kingdom of heaven is the same thing in scripture as the kingdom of God. And there is very much, as we will see, a future dimension to that. But there is also very much a present dimension and present reality as well. So it's not just referring to a place that you will go to. But that word kingdom, it refers to the actual ruling and reigning of a king or queen. Yeah. So it's, the actual, it's not so much the place, that's like a secondary meaning. We, we kind of think of it as a place because that's where the king or queen rules or reigns. But that word in the original language, it's, it's the actual ruling and reigning. So it's God being in charge. It's things being the way God says that they should be. So it's God's perfect love and God's perfect justice, his righteousness and his healing, his peace and his joy. It's where God's perfect order reigns over everything and everything is as it should be, finding its true meaning and purpose in him. It's a wonderful word. It's a wonderful word. It can almost sound kind of a little bit of a scary word as if God wants to come in and kind of beat everyone up and get everyone to do what he says. But you've got to understand this is about God who is the God of love coming and extending his perfect rule of love where there is harmony and peace and provision and justice and righteousness and all of these wonderful things. Everything is as God says it should be. And this is what Jesus is talking about here. This is what he's teaching about here. So let's dive into Matthew chapter 5. We'll read verses 1 to 12 to start with. Matthew 5, 1 to 12. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. These blessed are statements um, are sometimes referred to as the Beatitudes. You may have heard people talking about the Beatitudes. And the thing with these Beatitudes is we, we could be tempted to see them as kind of like rules to follow if you want to be blessed. Yeah, we could think, right, I want the blessings of God in my life, so I need um, to follow these. And if I do these, then I will be blessed. But that would be a mistake, because that's not really what Jesus is setting out to do here. What Jesus is setting out to do here is to redefine 
in everybody's thinking and understanding who is blessed. Who enjoys the favor of God on their life? Who is it, if you like, for want of a better way of putting it, who is it that's in with God? Who's in with God? Because the minute you start saying these blessed are statements, you kind of automatically, don't you, have at the back of your mind, so there are some people who aren't then. And actually, in Luke's version, he makes that explicit because he goes on to say woe to... Another whole different list of people. So what Jesus is saying, he's saying these are the kinds of people. It's not this is what you have to do, but these are the kind of people who are blessed by God. And the kind of people who are in with God turns out are not the kind of people that Jesus' listeners would have expected. But what does Jesus mean even when he says that people are blessed? Um, See, what Jesus meant could get lost in translation a bit because he spoke mainly in Aramaic. I guess it's possible that he used a Hebrew word, um, but then that Aramaic or Hebrew word got translated into Greek in the New Testament, and then we translated that into English or whatever language you prefer to read the Bible in. And so it's possible, isn't it, that we we have these ideas. And I wonder if any of us have ever kind of slipped into seeing that word blessed almost more as I was blessed, as in I had some good fortune this week. Like somebody gave me 50 pounds. I was blessed this week. We often use that that word blessed to mean money, don't we? or I was healed, or I don't know, someone just did something nice for me. I was really blessed. And we can kind of slip into thinking that that's that's what that word means, blessed. It's true that probably one of the best English translations we can come up with for that word is happy. And so some versions even say, happy are the poor in spirit, happy are those who mourn. But, of course, there's a problem here with our modern understanding of happiness. Because how on earth could we be saying, happy are those who mourn? Happy are those who are being persecuted and suffering and falsely accused. Yay! Because when we think of happy nowadays, we think of, like, I don't know, instant gratification. We think of everything going our way, of everything just making us happy. But Jesus is talking about a different kind of happiness. He's redefining happiness. And he's also shifting its time frame too. He's shifting his listeners away from an expectation of entirely present happiness. Instant gratification. And he's shifting them towards an eternal perspective where our happiness is based on future reality. And that's a really important concept of the kingdom of God that we come across again and again in all kinds of ways when we start to read the Bible. That God's kingdom is now. Jesus came into our world and he said, look, the kingdom of God is amongst you. The rule of God is breaking into our world in the here and now. And so we can experience healing. And we can experience financial blessings And we can experience God's blessing and intervention in our world in all kinds of wonderful ways because these are signs 
of the coming kingdom. But I wonder if it's almost a bit like the starter. You see, if you expect the starter to be everything, you're probably going to be disappointed. Yet when that little dainty plate comes out with about three chicken nuggets that have been dressed up to look like something posh and fancy, with some posh sauce in a little pot by the side. When that, if that was the meal, you'd be like, you'd start grumbling and complaining. But when you know it's the starter, it just makes you anticipate the next course. It makes you anticipate what is to come. See, the kingdom has come into our world, but we're not yet enjoying the full banquet. We're not yet having everything that there is to have. So we're already in the kingdom. We've already entered into it. But there's also so much of a future dimension to it. And I want you to notice that in these Beatitudes that we've read. In verse 3, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Already is theirs. And at the end, blessed are the persecuted, because are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. So we've received it already. But then if you read all the Beatitudes in between, they're all future tense. Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled, and so on. There's a future. There's not everything about it is instant, but here are a people who are blessed because of something that they've entered into and because of something that they're anticipating. Jesus says that these kind of people are happy now because of what will be in the future. And remember, he's not outlining specific behaviors, but he's describing the kind of people that will participate in this amazing kingdom, that will be included in God's plan and purpose, that will turn everything on its head. Jesus is describing his kingdom people kingdom community, the kind of people that are blessed, that will enjoy God's favor. And perhaps that's another great way to understand that word blessed, enjoying the favor of God. And enjoying God's favor won't shield us from trials and temptations or even suffering. Neither will it guarantee a constant stream of material blessings in the here and now. But it will ensure that you participate in this kingdom. It will ensure that you are part of this kingdom. It will assure us of our identity and our destiny. A theologian called Scott McKnight, um, and some of us have been reading a a commentary that he wrote on the Sermon on the Mount in preparation um, for these messages. He said, a blessed person is someone who, because of a heart for God, is promised and enjoys God's favor regardless of that person's status or countercultural condition. A blessed person is someone who, because of a heart for God, is promised and enjoys God's favor regardless of that person's status or countercultural condition. 
because there was lots in this passage that would have been countercultural for the people who heard it. So McKnight suggests that we group um, these Beatitudes into threes, three threes. There are nine Beatitudes. And he says the first three we could kind of summarize in terms of humility, the second three in terms of justice, and the last three in terms of peace. And I'm going to um, whip through these as quickly as I can, these nine, um, and hopefully provoke maybe a desire to go and look some more uh, and study some more. Um, just to warn you, um, I will take longer on the first three than on the remaining six. So if you feel like he's still on number two, it's okay. Okay, I'm watching the clock. Okay, so first one then. In Luke's version, we simply have blessed are the poor rather than the poor in the spirit. Okay, but um, Matthew says blessed are the poor in spirit. And Christians have therefore argued over whether blessing uh, whether there's any blessing in being financially poor, um, whether that was what um, Jesus was trying to say. And I think it's important that if Jesus is describing the kind of people who enjoy God's favor with the intention of challenging everybody's expectations around who's in with God, then this must at least include the financially poor. We can't just spiritualize this and say it doesn't include the financially poor. And Luke, therefore, just says, blessed are the poor. Yeah. And that would have been really kind of shocking to people hearing that. But, but God has a heart for the poor. Blessed are the poor. It's not just about those who have all the means and all the wherefores and the status and the privilege in society. This is not that kind of kingdom. God has a heart for all people. Jesus consistently challenges wealthy oppressors and teaches them to give to the poor all the way through the New Testament. He told a parable about a rich man who was excluded from heaven whilst a generous poor man was included. He said it was incredibly hard for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. In fact, it was as hard as it is to get a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Not because God loves rich people any less, but because Jesus knew how much harder it is for a rich person to realize their need for God and their dependence on him. And this is what Jesus is getting at here. Blessed are those who are dependent on God. Blessed are those that don't have all their, you know, ducks in a row and everything sorted and self-sufficient. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's those kind of people, often including the financially poor and oppressed. It's those kind of people that rather than the self-sufficient who look after themselves at everybody else's expense, it's those that will be that will receive God's kingdom. Secondly, those who mourn are blessed, for they will be comforted. Of course, it's true um, that God, you know, we often use this um, verse, don't we, when somebody's lost someone. And it is true, of course it's true, that God comforts us when we mourn the loss of a loved one. But Jesus is saying much more than that here. If you look with me at Isaiah 61, 1 to 4. 
Isaiah 61, 1-4. Um, this is a passage that Jesus later quotes. It says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. This is about mourning the state of God's kingdom people. This was what was going on there in that passage in Isaiah. Um, the, the, the people of God had got themselves in a mess. There was uh, judgment coming. They'd been unfaithful to God. They were being carried off into exile. And there's a promise here that God is going to comfort those who mourn. So the idea is the kind of people that are blessed, that are in with God, are not the kind of people that says, well, I'm doing fine, so I don't really care about the purposes of God and what's going on in our world around me. I don't really care about the injustice or the poverty or the oppression that's just at the end of my street. As long as I'm all right, as long as I'm 